Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Jan Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, curators and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together, and Ahali generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to a highly conversation. Our second season continues with Nato Thompson. He's a curator and the founder of the Alternative Art School. Before setting up this experimental education project, Nato was the artistic director of Philadelphia Contemporary and a key figure at the Creative Time, New York's influential organization focusing on art and public space. He also authored and edited a number of books, such as Living as Form from 2011, being one of my favorites. You will listen to Nato reflecting on that shift from working within institutions to setting up one's own. His insights on the inner workings of the art industry is totally thought-provoking. And it's the first time we are talking about NFTs at Ahali. This conversation really shows the many blind spots or things we tend to overlook about the statu quo. So I won't keep you for too long. Just as always, there's an extensive list of references that we cover in our episode notes, so make sure to check them out for further links. And for the more visually oriented, we will be sharing images of works that are mentioned in this episode on Instagram. So check us out at ahali.podcast. So welcome, Nato. It's great to have you at Ahali. It's here. Thank you. So you started off as a curator in the more institutional context and ventured more and more into what you define as becoming a builder of cultural infrastructure. Can you give us some insight onto how you come to define that role? Okay, so curator. You know, I didn't even know that was a job. I discovered it late in life. And it was only because I was, you know, mid-20s, lost, didn't know what the world wanted from me. And I was like, what am I good at? What am I good at? And I was only good at getting my strange friends to do things. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know that was a job called curator. But I ended up finding that there was a way. I come from a working class background and I needed a job. I couldn't freelance. I couldn't like jump from thing to thing. I needed like steady pay. So I, I went after this thing called curator. And curating was exciting. And I worked at a place called Mass Mocha. And that was a museum of contemporary art that had just started. And then I went to Creative Time, which is a public arts organization you mentioned. And what was cool about public art was we could, you know, people think of public arts like in parks or in the city, you know. But really what I realized was it was anything that wasn't in a museum or gallery. <laughs> and what became fun about that, working with artists like Paul Chan or Tanya Bruguera, Trevor Paglin or Simone Lee, was like, we could kind of make up our own rules. And because you're out in public and you don't have a museum telling you it's art, people just encounter phenomena. They just encounter things happening in the world. And it's, it's almost like being a magician, that skill. The ability to kind of take what people think the given order is and to twist it around. Looked at that curator. And then I'll just, I'll be quick. I don't want to go too long. The funny thing about the curator job, I was like, dude, you know, I'm, I'm almost 50. And I was like, yo, this job's lame. Like, if I was a postman, there'd be like 70 jobs in every city, if not the hundreds, right? You're a contemporary art curator, there's like one job in a city. What kind of dead-end job is that? And 
dude, you know, you got to stay hip on what's all happening today around the world. And I'm like, I can't even get songs on my phone. (laughs) Who am I kidding, man? This is not a job for getting old. And also, I kind of felt like to go to the infrastructure builder, and no offense to curators out there, but I felt like I was kind of, curator, you're still putting art shows on in other people's plans. And I, I was tired of being, you know, rather than, you know, there was like this last summer was Black Lives Matter in America, Black Lives Matter too, you might say. And there was a lot of questioning of the infrastructures of the arts, its disparities around race, class, gender, sexuality. But the project of rebuilding those infrastructures, the project of remaking those institutions, rethinking economies, it's a different kind of task. But I suppose after going to all these art fairs and hearing everyone complain about them or going to art schools and everyone complain about them, at some point in your life, you got to stop complaining and building new worlds. And so that's kind of what I mean is I'm kind of interested in producing the, the, the frameworks by which this kind of art ecology participates. That's fantastic. And that's, I'm imagining the ethos from within which the alternative art school emerged. Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, many things happened there. I, um, it's funny, you know, this word school. I mean, so yes, that's where it started. Just to be short. I've grown up with two work, a few, and the arts, you know, people are in the arts because they hate the arts. That's like, like a classic sign you're in the arts. It's because you're, <laughs> I hate the art world. And you're like, you're definitely in the art world when you hate the art world. Um, but, um, but certainly I've heard people complain about higher education and art schools a long time. And no offense. It's also funny because all my friends are art teachers because there wouldn't be critical art in the world if there weren't art teachers because they're certainly not getting money through galleries. No offense. Who wants critical art above their bed? (laughs) But like, um, but at the same time, it was like, I'm sitting there thinking, what is, you know, this pandemic, I mean, I was sitting there on Instagram having conversations with artists around the world on Instagram live. And I was like, I think I had a moment like everybody else where I thought, man, this internet's come a long way. Like <laughs> this thing really works, you know, like I could talk to like anybody like this is like Star Trek. And then, um, and I don't know, I feel like I keep getting to know the internet over and over. Like we're in a long-term marriage and they keep changing personalities. But then like the other thing was when I was at Creative Time, I was, you mentioned the Creative Time summits, you know, I, we had these incredible relationships with the art world that isn't, it's kind of in the cracks of the art world, but is bigger mm-hmm. than the art world itself. You know, the artists that are, making things because they want to. They don't have a commercial practice. They're struggling to make ends meet. I mean, most artists, you know, and there's, and I realized that huge network just can actually get cinched up with this thing called the internet. So we started the art school. And the other thing I'll say briefly is I, like many people in the art world, I always thought the art world is this innovative place. <laughs> it's not innovative at all. I mean, if when you look at most of the museological structures, the galleries, I mean, this is not even capitalist. This is almost feudalist in its disposition. And uh, it's a very old, archaic structure. And for whatever reason, art often has an allergy towards technology. Don't talk about art and tech. Mm -hmm. That's a category. And it also has an allergy to commercial projects. Either it's crass, sell-over-the-counter commercialism, or it's some sort of nonprofit, suffer-poorly-till-you-die process. Like, <laughs> there's two worlds. Yeah. Or the completely hidden multi-million eight-digit transactions. Well, that's true. Or the other one, which is a lot of the art world is actually privately funded and doesn't doesn't turn a profit, but likes to make it look like it does. Mm. So there's a lot of the art world that isn't even really there economically. It's very confusing. Yeah. Anyways, just to say, I got really interested in not doing a nonprofit, but having, not because I'm 
interested in like capitalism, quote unquote, my friend said to me, I think it was Trevor Paglet said, you know, people in the city don't say, hey, do you want to go to the for-profit grocery store? Want to buy some for-profit eggs for breakfast? They just buy eggs. You know, you go to the grocery store, you buy groceries. And, um, you know, having a version of trade where people support each other with money to add resources and equity into an infrastructure is a different model the school's operating on and, and also closing the distance. So we've had artists like Trevor Paglin, Mel Chin, Tanya Bergera, Janine Anthony, Yal Batana, um, Marinelle Senatore, Miguel Lopez, Mia Yu, Greta Gawiwong, Mario Ibarra Jr. Dope, dope artists and curators. And it's simple. We all meet in a room. And so I, I got a technology partner. I don't think any about technology at all, but I realized I can partner with people that do. And um, there's plenty of people that understand technology that have no ability to understand content. Yeah. Just to paraphrase something you said for the record and for underlining it, we had Katrin Baum as one of our recent guests. I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but she draws the analogy of the iceberg. And the tip of the iceberg is, I mean, she takes that from Gibson Graham, the like counter-capitalist theorist. And they argue that the tip of the iceberg is what we see as the visible economy. And she says, what is the visible, let's say, art world. And underneath, there's the huge iceberg, which is not visible to those who are looking from the outside, but it actually makes the whole thing possible. And which are all these things that you mentioned, and also like the informal sector, the bartering, the many other modes of operation for the case of economics and for, in our case, artists who are teaching, artists who are making a living from other sources, artworks that are done on, and let's say, not necessarily transactional basis, and many, many things like that. But we rarely see it. It's rarely visible to the outside world. So in that sense, I just wanted to draw that link to what you said. And coming back to the alternative art school, it's really an impressive roster. And I really see the, he, see the motivation and partly how a highly emerged, this podcast emerges also kind of similar moment of reflection and the reality of the pandemic in that suddenly allowing us to meet in other, through other means, like we are now here together. And that in our case evolved into this kind of series of gatherings, which we then release as a, as a podcast. But the, of course, the establishing an art school is whole different beast. And I respect you a lot for starting that off. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about the mechanics or how it works. So I'll say a few things. So we start, we partnered with this group called Smash Cut, which is an online learning environment mm-hmm. by NYU's film school and uh, allows us to have a campus, you know, a place we meet where people break out into groups. So artists that attend can initiate their own groups. Like there's an art and spirituality group, an art and books group, an art and permaculture group. You can get the idea, you know. And people break out and they can meet 24-7 on the platform. We also, just interesting, in terms of the live courses, what was wild is when we started this, I had no idea what would come back. And it totally blew my mind about what school is or what it can be. It's almost a problem, the word, because people think of school, something you do when you're in your 20s. But it's funny because it's kind of the last time you should be in school because you're not really ready to learn yet. You think you know everything. You're all too cocky. Exactly. (laughs) You need the world to kind of beat you up for a while. And then like you can actually go learn. But like, you know, the people that tend mostly are in their 30s, 40s, 50s. And they're working artists. 
And it also made sense to me. And it's probably female, not all, but I'm just, it's just some interesting things uh, emerged. And a few things emerged that blew my mind. So one is the age demographic. Two is the gender disposition. But it made sense. I realized the internet doesn't just connect cities. It connects living rooms. It doesn't, it's um, that the art world, uh, this is my own analysis, bear with me, uh, for all its informal qualities, which it is, that tip of the iceberg analogy, there's, a, there's also a problem to that, which is because it's so informal, it tends to lean heavily young. Mm. It is so informal that if you're not friends with these people, you have a difficult time breaking in. Totally. If you have a kid at home, or if you've aged out of that hanging out at parties age, it becomes all the more inaccessible. And so while everyone believes, and it makes sense, in, in every specific instance, this informal world, I can understand and sympathize with the kind of grassroots, pulling it together kind of mode. But because it's so not formalized, it in total around the world has a certain disposition to it that becomes inaccessible for certain demographics, races, sexualities. And it's not by any kind of choice. It's more of a kind of gravity, you know? And yeah. so what we found with the school was people from different parts of the world that felt either locked out or wanting a community to talk to. And the other thing is we, you know, besides just, we have a tuition-based program, but we also bring fellowships and people in from different parts of the world around race and class. So we have like an artist, Winf Winfred Amoa, who is in Ghana, Accra, Ghana. Mm -hmm. We have another artist, Ana Izquierdo, coming in from Bogota. And we had an artist in Philadelphia, Akil Robertson, who was on a fellowship for mural arts, who was 20, a 28-year-old photographer who just finished serving 10 years in prison. Wow. And then you have these rooms where people get to know each other from really different backgrounds, really different backgrounds. And they become sympathetic and empathetic to each other. And because it's older, I don't think they have that edgy 20-year-old kind of, I don't know, you know, like the critique you know, the kind of art beat each other up thing. It's not that kind of environment. You know, it's, it's much more practicing, listening, being sympathetic. And so I, you know, I, I realized something about scale that mm -hmm. people are not meant to have conversations with thousands of people. People are meant, not meant to talk in nuance on Twitter or Facebook. But if you have 12 to 14 people that you spend deep time with, protracted deep time with, you can learn a lot from each other in a kind of yeah. palafari way. You know what I mean? In a kind of what way? Sorry, uh, palliative. Paulo Freire, kind of like pedagogy of the oppressed, a certain kind of... Mm, Paulo Freire, yeah. Like a lived experience knowledge where you speak and you get tools to understand your truth and then people come to understand your knowledge from your experience and you understand their knowledge from their experience. And one of the things I'll say which is powerful about that, because I think about like social alchemy, mixing rooms across class is interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, you can have wealthy folks in the same room as people that are broke and people with different races. And I got to tell you something. Everyone's got tools to offer each other, you know. For sure. It's not, it's not just some kumbaya, the world's great thing. But I'm just saying that there are different life experiences provide different tools and insights. And people all could use different tools to gain a grip, especially with art. We're trying to, to come to grips with this complex, cosmopolitan, fractured experience we're in. No, I hear you. And this, the note about the scale and the intimacy and the kind of the connection that 
emerges from that small group is I think sounds quite crucial and then may I ask like does it I'm not asking it in a kind of way that I'm expecting that to happen but I'm just curious like does it add up or does it scale up do these small groups then also see what each other are doing or is there a kind of becoming an alumni network of sorts or like how does it grow not that it needs to grow but I'm well I mean I'll say this a few things one we're, we're just hanging to one year of operation mm-hmm. and about 78 artists attend the school at this point. Wow. About 65% return or more. You know, we don't, it's not like a curriculum where there's like, you have to you know, get a degree or anything. If you think of it like tapas. Some people take one course, some people take three, but I will say this relationships totally exist. I mean, we have, uh, we have a group that just stays in touch and they really develop and it's really amazing. And there's a real energy there. I do think, I mean, this is the year where I'm looking to get some investment and some kind of, <laughs> some more capacity. I mean, we're running a school, dude. This thing's a lot of work. So like we, we need, I need, I got a, um, two different tech business advisors that are going to help kind of scale mm. this thing in a way that's still gentle. And I'm not like, it's not some sort of like, let's take over, but I just need this thing to kind of run smoother. And I also want to, you know, the dream was to get this thing on its feet, which we did. We produced an incredible, viable, incredible educational atmosphere. I really am starting to develop relationships where we can have some fellowships from around the world where people don't have to pay, mm. you know? accounting for geopolitical scales of economies, different backgrounds um, to produce an amazing environment. So, but in general, it's uh, still a kind of tuition-based and then there are fellowships which are supported. Yeah, yes. And does it have a time frame? Uh, I mean... So we're moving to a semester system. We were doing four quarters a year. Mm-hmm. I think I almost went crazy running at that pace. <sighs> um, and hey, listen, just as... For your listeners, if anybody's interested, just reach out. It's www.thealternativeartschool.net. But I'm happy. I mean, if you ask questions, I'll just, I literally will talk to you. Well, you're going to have a conversation about the school. But um, yeah, we work on a semester system. And um, next quarter, I believe Hito Styro will be joining us as a faculty member. Yo, I just dropped that on your show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know, that's so funny. It's like, I realize that these names mean a lot to me. And no offense, Hito, but like, I've always had this feeling, uh, even uh, the whole time in, in the art world, which is, there's really no such thing as a famous artist. Like, like it's, if you tell your parents any of these artists' names, they'll just be like, who? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like anybody. I'll be like, yo, man, I'm working with Tanya Bergera. And they're like, uh, am I supposed to care? What? <laughs> and then like, I did, this is a funny thing about how, how tiny the art world is in that way. Like I, I did a talk at MoMA. You know, you do a talk at these big institutions, but no one shows up and no one cares. But my mom was like, you finally made it. You're doing a talk at the Museum of Modern Art. I was like, mom, we don't care about that world. I made it a long time ago. What do you mean? <laughs> but you know, whatever. It's just funny. So, but anyways, these, these faculty, just as a note, like Keto's amazing. And I also kind of like these kind of, you know, what's the style of it? It's kind of these artists that actually care about the yeah. world, are critically engaged with it, have a certain kind of empathy in the way they approach their own art, art and being, yeah. you know, like I think like a lot of people, I always thought, I grew up thinking art wasn't something you made. It was a kind of lifestyle. Like, like you're just kind of living art, you know, like some sort of other plane where you're like radical, political, dreamy, got, like to get freaky. <laughs> 
Like I wasn't like, I, I was like, that's, I just hang out with people like that. I guess they call that the arts, you know, but I, I like artists that kind of live in that kind of vein of the world. You know, mm. I'm not interested in like pretty makers, but everyone knows that. Yeah. No. And then how does a faculty contribute to these meetings? Do they have other sessions or is it again, like self-organized? I mean, we have, so they have, so they have the courses they run and then they, you know, every one of them is very generous with their the artists in the course and everyone gets to know each other. But then we also have council meetings. The school also has um, what we call tea times where we meet. Sometimes we'll have an artist from somewhere in the world do a tour of their neighborhood while we all eat lunch or whatever time zone meal is appropriate. We have artists share sessions where artists share work with each other and get feedback with mm-hmm. better facilities. And then we also have these kind of like co-working meetings where everyone doesn't have to talk you just make together which is kind of cool mm. and, uh, and then the artists that we have a council meeting where we kind of talk about ideas janine throws a dance party at the end of every quarter you know we do things and i you know the artists are very invested in this it's not just them they all i mean i kind of joke and i'm not it's funny because i'm of a generation that can't do anything without sort of making fun of itself <laughs> so and maybe that's this is like the total anti-modernity but like, I always felt like the Black Mountain College, you know, gets a lot mm. of credibility, but like, really white and Western European, you know, like, so like, I mean, no offense, John yeah. Cage and Merce County. That's so 1950s, you know what I mean? But I was like, what about like a international, interdisciplinary, intersectional, global school where the faculty are revolutionary and understand the big dream we're building, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I think knowledge has come a long way. I don't think everyone's so cut and dry about like some avant-garde notion they understand geopolitics is complex, but I do believe I've always believed in the kind of international project of solidarity as complicated as it is and as, as tricky as it is to navigate um, confronting large forces at this point in time. But I always have felt like since we well, mentioned living as form since 2011, since well, your own revolution there, Tax of Square, uh, since Arab Spring, since Occupy Wall Street, the, the, the critical art world has really been shattered. And everyone's had to react to a terrifying return. I think it's social media related return of the radical right. Mm-hmm. A certain provincialism isn't just in the governments. It's infused itself in the art worlds themselves. Everyone's putting out fires at home. And it's been really difficult to build a certain kind of internationalism again. And I think that that project is like what you're doing is urgent urgent. Totally agree. And in your case, I think it's treating the educational format, so to say, as a realm of possibility and also as a place like a setting for artistic activity is seems quite crucial. So it's not to me, at least from the outside, it's not only about setting up a school in the conventional sense, but it's also testing out ideas, kind of igniting possibilities and opening up a new field from there. Well, it's also prototyping ways to build infrastructure and community that mm. has capacity and resources. You know, look, how long we've we been in the art world and watch Sotheby's and Christie's sell things for millions of dollars and we just sit by passively and watch? Yeah. You know, like how, I mean, how radical is this community? <laughs> Like, you know, it's like, I just feel like being a spectator to the world you participate in is is outrageous. And I think we're, I think everyone is sort of allergic to being dirty with resources, no offense. But like, there's ways, you know, most, and I'm not, you know, just to say revolutionary movements in the world, and I'm not talking about like, I'm going to be some radical revolutionary. I'm just saying the real ones understood money helps. Yeah. Like, 
you didn't, you know, and we could go down the long list of what, what that means. <laughs> but I'm just saying, I'm just saying that this kind of hitching your ride to no resources will lead you down the trail of being on the, on the victim end of power. And not that like I'm saying it's easy to get resources, but I think taking it seriously about how we can, you've mentioned the iceberg, right? Well, how many resources are in that bottom part of that iceberg? Exactly. How much more can we organize that to build the structure we care about rather than complaining about that tip? True. Totally agree. And then maybe we can, if you like to disclose, we can kind of hear from you about your economic model. Like how does it work? How do you... In a way, what are your revenue models or how do you operate? Well, there's a few I'll say. So, you know, this, and I'll, I'll talk about this in a bit. And I don't want to get, I mean, you know what, dude? I'm like, you could come two years from now and be like, he said a bunch of stuff, but it all failed miserably. So I, I don't, 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 don't give me, I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud here. So just bear with me. But um, I'm like, yo, what we basically do is like the world's big, you know, like people in Sweden <laughs> have more money than people in Ghana. People in the United States, their money goes further than the people in Bogota, right? Well, it's a bit, but on the internet, you can be in all those places simultaneously. So the short thing is we offer a tuition-based thing where we're lower priced than American higher education art schools. That said, and we also believe in the next few years, we could have faculty that are better than any art school in the world of a certain kind of disposition, I would say. Mm -hmm. And then we take that those tuition dollars, so it's it's fifteen hundred dollars for one course, twenty five hundred for two, and three thousand for three. We're always trying to find the price, but put us roughly it. And then I kind of say we take the money from an artist from Seattle and apply it to an artist from the global south, so to speak. Yeah. So this is what affords us fellowships, and then we partner with organizations around the world and work out deals where they send artists to us. So we work we worked out a deal with Saha, which is great mm-hmm. in. Turkey, who's actually produced a fellowship for two artists to attend this quarter, which is great. Thank you, Saha. And then also Proto Cinema from Turkey also hooked us up with some artists to attend. Like right now we have Farat Engine from outside of Ankara. And then we have Vahab Azvar attend too. Yeah. No, both of them. <laughs> yeah. Cool people. And then, and then we worked out a deal with Maya Museum in Chiang Mai, Thailand, where they send Southeast Asian artists. And we're developing these things, you know? So that's, I mean, that's the basic economic model. I suspect, I already know, this is the year where we actually kind of get more serious about a business advisor to figure out how to tweak that a little bit. But that's the basic model. Um, I want to say one other thing, though. I also, this is just a prototype for thinking about how, I'll put it this way. So there was this music movement in Washington, D.C. called D.C. Hardcore. And there were bands like Bad Brains and Fugazi, Minor Threat, Nation Ulysses, whatever. But the basic idea was punk kids buy albums from labels that demonstrated the values they believed in, right? Mm-hmm. And you knew when you bought that Fugazi album that they had all ages shows, that they would only charge this much money, that they had a certain kind of political and economic disposition. And that is to say the consumer was being political by where they put their cash. And that, I believe, is a clue to something the art world could learn from, which is that whole world, rather than being free openings and free, 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 Everything's free, except everything's really, it's either free or super expensive. <laughs> Two choices in the art world. Super free, or you can't afford it. That's, <laughs> that's the art world. <laughs> like, it's free beer, and you got to buy a Lamborghini in the back. 
But like the idea that things are affordable and price points you can do, I think is important. And I think the internet has ways to do this because I'm also working, I can't say too much right now, but I'm working on it. Yes, NFT project. Oh, wow. An NFT project with the same underlying principles, which is intentional economies scaled using this. Why is the internet so insane? Do you think I can go build a school? Like I'm going to go buy a bunch of bricks and I'm going to buy a plot of land. And I'm going to be putting those bricks together and then I'll go get some metal and make an HVAC system and then get the law. What are we talking about? No. But in here, you can make a school. You can make a commercial art world. You can make a way in which you can reallocate resources across a community that cares. Don't let's not mistake the radicality of that. Yeah, no, totally. But now that you opened the Pandora's box of NFTs, I'm curious about your take on it because I've been like so far a bit skeptical of the whole thing. Well, you should be. I mean, it's in our nature. You wouldn't be in the art world if you weren't skeptical of giant money flowing around with things called people. <laughs> But that said, I mean, <laughs> these are the fundamental things. Like I kind of gave a little speech about it. But do I think that digital art is interesting? Been in the art world for 20 years. Nothing new about that. You know, what is a photograph? It's just a digital file. Yeah. <laughs> That's addition. What's, a, what's video art? You know what I mean? Like the, the aesthetic form is nothing new. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, even with those forms, I always struggled with the notion that something that can be, in a way, by nature, subject to potentially unlimited reproduction, being additioned and being kind of rarefied. I'm with you. You know, and what I understand from NFT is like it's a certificate. It's the equivalent of certificate of authenticity in a sense. But there might be more. I'm not, I don't know it, so... Certificate of authenticity that is confirmed through the blockchain technology. Mm -hmm. Now, I think this is, we all know the art world would not exist if it weren't for the power of painting. Why? It's not, the art world doesn't exist because everyone's interested in the arts. The art world exists, and I'm talking about the infrastructure, because there are things that are made that are one of a kind, and that is the coursing blood of the art world. Interesting artists y'all like with the commercial galleries, they're just window dressing for the painters in the back, right? The painters are what makes the art fairs move. And the paint, and we, and everyone knows it, you know? Yeah. And, and not, it's not about art. It's about this ultimate commodity of one attached with oil. Yeah. And I'm at a negative way. I'm always saying that because it's important. We're talking about infrastructure in the arts, having a clear eye of what has made this infrastructure go around, mm -hmm. which is painting, allows you to get around this other possible economy because painting will not do well in the NFT landscape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to tie this back to what you said first and how does the, like, how do we reconcile that with the kind of phenomena that you just come across, you know, like work that exists in, let's say, other realities or can exist in multiple realities simultaneously that are not necessarily just like circulating in the market, but things that people come across. Of course. Think of it like this. The art world that exists, that has painting, has had all these incredible spin-offs on profit spaces, right? Because there's an economy that holds it together. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because it exists. And I always say that because it's not, I'm not saying that the NFTs are the end-all be-all of art forms, 
but think of it as a different way in which the underlying economics can be structured and it allows different people to get involved. And it's not to say that you can't still do your socially engaged art community project that has no materiality, that is like open source. It's not, it's not, it's not about like owning one kind of aesthetic. I'm just saying that the underlying infrastructures and the ways that you can support those spaces, the ways that you can produce alternative spaces, the ways that you can make a world without sitting at a dinner laughing at a rich person's joke because you got to get that grant. Like that is what the I think is an interesting kind of twist on this is that we can actually get our hands on the infrastructure in a way that's very different. And rather than being like, I believe in other kinds of art, everything should be free. Like I said, when you want everything to be free, you'll just sit there and watch Sotheby's and Christie's make lots of money. You know what I mean? And you're going to watch all these Swiss folks money laundering in the name of what you do. Fuck that. Fuck that, dude. What are we doing? Yeah. Well, so then the salvation is uh, in a kind of digital literacy, which would allow us to understand the dynamics or do we, because the whole NFT world is, seems to me like also another kind of population, which is not as far to me as the kind of super rich that you are uh, portraying but still quite far from my reality in a sense. I'm just, I'm also thinking out loud. I don't, I didn't think this, but. It's far from my reality too. Are you kidding me? Like, I don't know nothing. I, like, I can't even get songs on my phone. Like what kind of, I'm not, I'm not too, dude. But I'll tell you this, two things I've totally been freaked out by. One, a generation's coming up with a number one influence in their lives is game. Mm-hmm. And NFT and crypto land, that's very gamer culture, you know? And there's a world coming up where the digital world is the dominant world, not the RL. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to say, and it makes that some sort of like, oh no, here it comes. I've got a son, he plays Minecraft. Like the idea of putting art in his house he made is a no brainer. He's, he's unclear why you would put it in your real house. Not many people can see that in the internet house, all kinds of people can see it. And I would say that because I also feel like our own aesthetic and cultural kind of understandings of the world are shifting by this. It's not just like Silicon Valley tech bros. You know what I mean? It's a world that's, it's a generation that's native to the digital landscape and understands things through gaming, through sharing videos, through producing worlds together. And I think that's going to have, I mean, like if you look at that site like Discord, or these kind of gaming communities where people are like kind of in conversation like this, but also gaming simultaneously. Mm-hmm. A lot of technological advances are coming out of that space. Also because if you ever play one of those video games like Red Dead Redemption or something or Grand Theft Auto, if you ever look at the credits of those things, they go on forever. I mean, there's like, you can't believe so many people worked on it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like somebody just worked on the way that the, 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 the leaves blow in the breeze. You know, like it, like the scale of the money in this thing has produced, to talk about infrastructure, yeah. has produced a world that is hugely impactful. I wanted to do one time a show, which I still got to do, I was talking about yesterday, a show called Budgets, where you could have the budget of like a bodega, the budget of like the, the like Sandinistas, the budget of like Google. Like, I feel like the budgets reveal a lot about scale about how things actually work. And it might be illuminating for us in the art world who <laughs> completely find the economies of the world mystifying. Yeah. The budget of an alternative space versus the budget of like a, a, a gallery versus the budget of Sotheby's. Like, yeah. like sometimes I see these folks in alternative space or artists are like, I don't want to make a profit. I'm doing it for the real thing. And I'm like, we really need some gray area here. There's not making a profit and there's literally dying 
Yeah. Like zero and like lots of, you know, it's like, I feel like I sometimes think there's a gap in scale understanding of what we're talking about here. And also, again, like the claim to not making profit also usually, I don't want to generalize, but most often comes with another part of that iceberg, which is generating some other form of support for it to exist. And that then also includes all the labor and other things that are, you know, just provided. Those provisions and those resources are also then most often can be undermined in such statements. So I'm under no policy in that sense. And these are questions of like, like very intriguing questions for me as well. But maybe now that we are also, I know you have limited time, so we might also want to make use of our time with our uh, small group of participants today with us. So if they have any comments or questions, this might be a good moment to open up to them. Let's do that. I'm playing drums with my chopsticks. Highly conversations are recorded together with participants who can join in the conversation with their questions. If you'd also like to take part in these live gatherings, visit ahali.space and send us a line via email. There is one thing that I would like to know, Nato. Like the, the faculty is great, but like, what about the curriculum? Would you like to unpack like what is? What is different in, yeah, in short, would you like to show where the, the distinction lies? Well, I mean, th- this is the kind of way we do it is each instructor is kind of given full remit to do whatever they want. And there's a lot of trust there. Now, you could say it doesn't add up to anything, but it's just a, I always say that because there isn't like, a, um, this isn't like a traditional school in that sense. Think of it like tapas. You know, this is more like artists being in conversation with each other to refine their craft in conversation with these artists. So, you know, for example, Mel Chin, He taught a course where the entire course, all the artists involved made one artwork as one group. It was kind of a project about listening, about the art, the teacher becoming a horizontal education structure. Whereas like I taught a course, tour of the complex art worlds where we went to one city each class. We went to Bogota, Istanbul, Rotterdam, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Athens. And we learned, we learned, met alternative spaces. So I think each course is unique in and of itself. How that adds up as a curriculum, I think it's kind of a grab bag. <laughs> what about output? Do you have a, like a, a show that comes out from the work that is done or is there a kind of window, so to say? We are working on that. Actually, right now we have a show that will open July 29th. That comes out of my course, which is an, exp- you know, I mean, we're prototyping here. It's only been around a year. I can't believe the school exists. Sure. But we're trying to find ways in which we can both have relationships. So we're pairing artists from different parts of the world together to make works about each other's lives. And then the artist will show the, show the other person's work either in their house or in their town. So we're trying to find ways in which we can both be using this as the internet as a way to move across space and um, feel relationships, but also the ways things can materialize in the world at a low cost, <laughs> you know? Because I feel like if you can, you know, rather than, because re- a lot of artists, I realize like, it's a tough thing to wait for an exhibition to choose you or to wait for a gallery to find you. If we could find mechanisms that are simple by which we can have artists at the school exhibit around the world, it's a real opportunity for them. And every artist I know, I always think the last place you need to show is in the town you're in. <laughs> You've already shown it all the three spots that's available to you. Now what are you gonna do? You're only 28 and you've maxed out all your show opportunities. So I feel like I think it's not unique to any city that artists need to be able to exhibit elsewhere. 
So finding mechanisms for that are, is what we're working on. And I hope to be able to in a year, this is something we offer. Yeah. No, this idea of a distributed exhibition sounds pretty viable and could be very meaningful. And uh, I just want to ask, the title of the 2016 Creative Time Summit was Occupy the Future, uh-huh. five years onwards. <laughs> uh, what are your plans or what are your like reflections on, on the future? I mean, you've already given us a lot about the... The Trump one. Yeah, that's the Trump one. The Trump one. Talk about Occupy the Future. Holy shit. I mean, my God. But, you know, I got to say this. I mean, honestly, too, a, a lot's changed. Protest culture has changed. I mean, we talked about 2011, but in the United States, you know, Black Lives Matter came across. You had the... I mean, the world has changed a lot. And I feel like the social media landscape has become such a tr- giant force, profound force. And it went from the euphoria of it to sort of the dark side of it you know mm-hmm. where everyone's like i think social media results in right-wing presidents <laughs> i do think the occupy the future i'm really like for me which i hope is evidence i think it's time to take the art world back towards some kind of ethos and actual redistribution of economies about making it both locally sensitive and internationally connected to tighten it up between the amazing work done around the world and building up a community of values. And that means you have to, I mean, I've, I've looked at the Creative Time Summit, you know, like with activist culture as a white American male, no one's crying, no one's crying for me. But I'll tell you what, you also have to get used to people just tearing you down all the time, you know? Like there's no way you can get through it without like a lot of people problematizing you, telling you why you're wrong, yada, yada. And I listen but I can't have it hurt my heart, you know? And like, especially if you're going to deal with money and especially if you're going to actually like deal in nuance and economies, you can't be pure, you know? Purity ain't going to get a revolution moving. Sorry. This was really good, NATO. I love it. I love it. And we do love going to Istanbul. Hey, but listen, that was really nice. Nice to meet you both. Thanks so much for this morning. It's a real pleasure. Really great to be in touch and um, see you soon. Thank you for joining us and staying until the very end. NATO's candid response on the economical infrastructure of art was really eye-opening for me, and his call for opening up to new technologies towards a new internationalism in art is worth thinking further. Ahali Conversations are produced by Asla Altay and Sarprenk Özer, with Daria Yildiz as our associate producer. This episode was engineered by Elif Soğuksu with music by Group Ses. Make sure to check out the show notes to find out more about what we've discussed today. There's an extensive list of links and information down there. You can also visit us at ahali.space or get some visual insights at ahali.podcast via Instagram. I guess it goes without saying, but we really appreciate you spreading the word and supporting us by subscribing, rating, following sharing or whatever works for you. This was a highly conversations with me, Jan Altai, and we hope to see you next time.